I'm interested in also something that the Tao movement really has ignited, I think, in the public imagination, which is around the use of DAOs to organize groups of citizens, almost like movements are really around like coordinated activity. So there's a meme in the blockchain space that everything is coordination. All the problems we face just boil down to coordination problems, which personally I don't agree with because I really believe there's also like a, a problem of values and choices, like the choices we make and what we stand up for and integrity. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello, everybody. We are back at the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Today, we are with a special guest called Phoebe Tickle. And we connected with Phoebe to talk about one very interesting area of her work uh, that is around imagination and um, specifically going into concepts like moral imaginations and talking about how this uh, process of collective uh, imagination can be used in um, when designing and thinking about uh, organizations and organizational processes. And it's very interesting to learn from Phoebe on this topic. Uh, Phoebe is, has a background in uh, genetic network engineering, and she has a, a degree in biological natural sciences from Cambridge University. Uh, and she really started off, let's say, her uh, career in um, in this space. And uh, she's a still, let's say, a very young uh, woman, so so we can expect a lot to come from. Uh, from her over the years, I think. She has already had time to found two startups since the age of 22 and offering consultancy and advisory and learning around topics of the future of education, future of work, future of, of food, and a lot of very wide-ranging topics, but uh, connected through her facilitation and design thinking uh, skills. So, yeah, we had this conversation around imagination that uh, she's been working on. And what I thought was very interesting with this is getting into the question, why use such a process? What is, what is interesting about thinking about what can imagination do for us when we think about organizing maybe complex ecosystems or, you know, trying to organize in a more horizontal way? And I think what she really pointed out to me was that we are sometimes locked into our preconceived ideas of, of different realities. And um, that also helps to create polarities that we're witnessing a lot today. But it's only by having the the capability and the capacity to imagine the future that we can stretch beyond uh, what we know. And that, that really is something that is sort of desperately needed in our, in our times when we have a lot of, of these kind of lock-ins uh, in old systems dying out and, and we need to really see the contours of something new. So that was a great chat. Yeah, I mean, I've been criticizing a lot uh, in in the past, uh, um, you know, that those kind of approaches that have been prioritizing uh, imagination on top of uh, uh, doing and enterprising. But uh, I think uh, this conversation with Phoebe helped me to um, uh, to reconnect more with this idea, uh, especially as she speaks about. Uh, uh, the idea of an imagination activist. So essentially not discounting that uh, to really enact new ways of organizing that are ambitious enough to 
counteract the current state of things, you have to imagine something different. So uh, I think uh, I've learned that uh, imagination as Phoebe, you know, frames it, it's not really about, you know, just hoping for future things, but it's much more about envisioning something and then thanks to this envisioning, having the capacity to uh, bring it to the world. And I think that this is an essential piece that uh, we have to pay attention to, as you said. Another quick point, maybe I think uh, it, it, uh, we should be underlying, is where she spoke about this simplistic idea that sometimes, especially when we, speak, when we think about Web3 and blockchain space and those kind of new movements around uh, reinventing organizations, uh, we tend to think that everything is a coordination problem, uh, while instead uh, topics around morality or uh, topics around uh, perception and, and epistemology, these are as important as the coordination problems. So I think that's another highlight for me in this conversation. Overall, great chat. I, Phoebe also mentioned the one podcast that was about to be published in the conversation that uh, I just realized it went out uh, a couple of days ago with uh, uh, Kevin Owoki on the Green Peel podcast. So maybe you can complement uh, this, this podcast uh, if you are interested in uh, in Phoebe's ideas, especially in the space of Web3, you can complement these with that podcast. So that's all. Uh, enjoy the episode and uh, talk, talk soon. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. Uh, I'm here today with my usual co-host, Stina Heikila. Hello, happy to be here. And uh, today with us, we have another special guest, uh, Phoebe Tickell. Hi, good to be here. I mean, I feel we have to give a little bit of a frame and, and a little bit of a story as well, because uh, the topic we're going to discuss today, among others, but I would say that probably the core topic uh, is this idea of imagination, this idea of having this capacity, I would say this capability to think beyond uh, the traditional frames that, to some extent, we acknowledge have been limiting our capabilities and capacity to envision something different, basically. You have been doing a lot of work in, you know, in systems thinking, in governance, in organizational design. You know, probably as a first introductory question, you can also help us to understand uh, uh, why uh, imagination and that kind of capabilities have become such an important focus for anybody that uh, today engages with the idea of essentially mobilizing uh, collective capabilities uh, within and, and beyond organizations in movements, in, in society in general. Why is imagination such an important thing and how did you get to make it so central to your work? Uh, thank you, Simone. It's, that's a great question to start off with and just very excited to join you in this podcast that I've been following for, for the last couple of years. So imagination has really become such a big part of my work, actually through the path of working on governance, working, as you say, on organizational d design and systems thinking. The question of why is it so important, I think I would start with first. So Obviously, if we are wanting to change any sort of system or wanting to change and an organization is such a system, or if you want to gather or organize a group of people, 
it goes without saying that it it uh, very much helps to know where you're going. Like it, it helps to have a collective alignment and collective vision within the organizational context. You know, people talk about vision and purpose and direction and and you know having this collective coherence. And actually, a lot of the organizations and movements I've worked with in the past, like Extinction Rebellion or Inspiral or, or other movements and networks, are very key central patterning force is is a shared purpose you know if this is something we used to say within Inspiral which I was a member of for three years which we can also go into a bit later but you know when you decentralize activity and decision making and autonomy and you allow people to uh, use their context to make decisions without having to go up to a you know management top-down hierarchy to make decisions it's very key that people have a collective sense of purpose and direction so that they don't need to keep on checking in with that top of the pyramid. So having a shared collective imagination and having the capacity to do collective imagining is super important for any organization, but particularly a decentralized organization of any kind. So DAO, a movement, a network, uh, or a horizontal team. But on top of that, the reason imagination is is so important right now and actually within the framing I use is is that we need to train a new breed of activist and leader an imagination activist is because at the moment there is more and more of a narrowing in terms of our sense of how the world could be fueled by polarization and our current political system where we're given these false dichotomies of the world could be like this or it could be like this you can vote for this side or you can vote for this side. And that means that we actually have, it's almost like a stolen imagination because there's no space left for how could things be different? Actually, how could the whole system be different? The system within which we are already being um, framed within, say, the political system, it really robs us of the capability and the capacity to look at the options that are not on the table. So I think that's like another really important angle is the, almost like the epistemological activism or or the epistemological disobedience of using imagination to think about how things could be radically different or to imagine the unimaginable. And I think in the bigger framing of systems change and really wanting to radically change everything, seeing as we're in uh, most people would agree quite a tight spot as a civilization and as a as a species to be able to do that radical reimagination. That's also a capacity that needs to be uh, practiced. So it's really a practice. It's a muscle that needs to be flexed. And I believe that that is also connected to things like sovereignty and confidence and having the the permission, like giving ourselves the permission to think and imagine in these ways. So, so when, when you speak about this idea that the possibilities have been narrowing constantly in the last decades, let's say in, probably in the last century, you know, the, the, the possibility to envision a different uh, world or things made in a different way uh, has been narrowing, right? So, so I totally agree with this because we have been thinking about organizations as players in the system, right? So for example, you have a company, then, then you, your, your role is to maximize your shareholder returns, for example, or something like that. I really resonate with this idea that uh, 
you spoke about sovereignty, for example. When, when, when we think about imagining something different and enacting this, uh, to some extent, uh, my recurring question around uh, uh, imagination and, and envisioning has always been about the other side. So, so essentially, responsibility, accountability. Uh, so, you know, how do we basically imagine something that we can be accountable for? So how can we kind of reduce the distance, let's say, from what we imagine and what we can actually enact? Uh, this also resonates with uh, some conversation we had recently uh, related to a blog post that uh, our common friend Indy wrote when he spoke about the need to go beyond the risk-driven perspectives for the future into more like development driven. So I always struggle, let's say, in putting together, you know, this risk perspective about what is actually possible, what are the priorities that the world is dictating us versus our imagination. So how do you think about how these two pieces go together? So our accountability, the accountability we have towards our context, our landscapes, our, our you know, communities and so on in terms of dictating what we should do with imagining. So how does it work together? I think that's a really interesting connection to, to be made and directly also relates to the concept of moral imagination. I don't know if you just set that up perfectly for me to, to segue into the topic of moral imagination, which really brings together that ethics, values, accountability, and a sense of like, what kind of world do we want to live in, much more tethered to the constraints that we're in right now, because that's how we can actually develop a sense of what is right, what is wrong, but then using the imagination to really stretch out and expand into that realm of limitless possibilities. So I think exactly having that, holding that tension is where designing and, and developing new practice and developing new systems can be born in a very, that, that's a very fertile tension. And I, I really enjoyed in these new, that, that article that you mentioned around going beyond risk. And I think with risk, it's almost like the master and the emissary. Like risk is something that absolutely we need to account for and use as a, as a constraint, but we shouldn't be dictated by it. It shouldn't be our master so that we act at the cost of that creativity, that imagination, that sense of the, the very edge of innovation. Like if we only stuck to risk, if we only stuck to designing with risk at the center and, and uh, minimizing risk, then we would never actually take those great leaps of innovation that everybody would agree are the steps of our civilization actually developing in the direction that we we collectively would like. So moral imagination is a term that's been around since the 1700s actually and, and it's it's seeing a revival in the cognitive sciences, which is quite interesting, where people are saying that we cannot really have, like cognitive scientists are making the case for the fact that we can't really have ethics and morals without the imagination, because the imagination allows us to even test out future scenarios. How would we behave? What would be right? So imagination is so key um, to the development, as, as Indy talks about, like this development and this sense of who do we want to be? What kind of society do we want to live in? And I think he spoke about existential care, which also really connects to the concept of existential hope and existential uh, creativity, which I think is, is a really great frame. You know, we, we are facing huge existential risks as a civilization and species, 
how do we balance that huge responsibility and, and as you say, the accountability to future generations with also the creativity and the innovation to, to create better solutions? You know, in the manifesto that you have on your website, for example, you make uh, a reference to how morals that we are dealing, let's say, at the moment are uh, pretty much framed uh, in uh, rational and uh, deductive approaches, right? So in terms of deciding what's good, what's bad, we tend to think in terms of, for example, of sustainability. You know, it's something that is related to how, do we, how much we consume, you know, in terms of, for example, let's say that, okay, this business is sustainable because it consumes, you know, in a way that is sustainable over the long term. But, you know, it's always about can putting how much we can and so on. So, for example, this is the same concern that, for example, we have uh, and we discussed it in this podcast with uh, people from um, R3.0, uh, which is very much based on calculations, let's say, right? And, and also the donut approach, right? It's based on this idea of calculating our footprints and so on. But I'm wondering how much of these new mor- morals, it's much more abductive. So it's much more related to how we perceive an aesthetics, for example, right? You have been working a lot with Nora. So how can you you know, give us an idea of what are these new uh, moral elements that may be central to our ways of organizing beyond accounting and beyond uh, uh, calculations and rational drivers to changing the way we do things. I think it's it's so connected again, like almost looping back to the beginning of the conversation. And, and, you know, this is a really an active field of inquiry for me. Like I've been researching and developing this concept of moral imagination and the practice for the last three years, but I'm really in the inquiry around it. But I, the thing that comes alive for me as you ask that question is that if we only operate within the frames of, I think, as you said, calculations and what is already on the table. Like there are these invisible narratives and frames and almost like the the chessboard has already been drawn if you are not engaging the moral imagination. Like as soon as you start to plan for the future, you you know, the the strategy, the next five year strategy, and it's very this is also connecting a lot with Nora Bateson's work of warm data and complex systems, like how do you really practice and work within a complex system? If you're planning with what's already on the table, then you're not leaving the space to actually imagine far bigger. And I think the the core part of moral imagination is that you also engage that deeper sense that humans have to think, what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of world do I want to live in? Like, why are we not accounting for the future generations within this strategy? Like, I want to live in a world where we are directly uh, linking our governance with future generations, or we are directly accounting for nature and and non-human beings. If you're not engaging that imagination driven by the values and the sense of what kind of world you want to live in, which to me is, that's really how I would define moral imagination. It's the imagination driven by a sense of who do we want to be and what kind of world we want to live in, then you're already operating within the predefined game, you know, and and like Daniel Schmachtenberger and his colleagues refer to game A, game B, which I also think is a helpful frame because it's how do we reframe the whole game, the rules of the game. Um, And if we're not engaging with the imagination, then we already play within the, the constraints of 
what is considered important, what is uh, accounted for, how we account for value. You know, there's there's so much invisible infrastructure and, and like mental infrastructure around what we consider is important and, and worth accounting for that I think organizations that really want to be almost bringing the future that we want to live in into being need to engage with developing very different governance structures and organizational structures and experimenting with how do we actually get closer to our values and and the things we find deeply important because currently they're not being accounted for they're not being valued you know the really crude example I've always given is if you take a tree and you try and put a, a number on it in terms of what it's worth you end up costing the amount of furniture and wood and and paper that you can make out of this tree we don't account for the multiple complex processes and interdependencies that this tree is engaging in and nourishing the whole ecosystem so this also brings in the perspective of ecology which i also you know really feel has been massively left out of organizational design and theory and practice we talk about complex systems but very rarely do we talk about the ecology and the wider uh, complex system that an organization exists in. I would like to try to see if I can understand uh, something more about your practice uh, of this moral imaginations or imaginations in in general and what you mentioned in the beginning about this shaping coherence. It seems somehow difficult to me also in a world that is increasingly polarized. Uh, how do you tease out, let's say, a sort of shared direction through this work when you don't really know what each individual's experience and imagination would entail. So I'm very curious to know what kind of processes you have uh, for this work and, and how much it's it's sort of, uh, I don't want to say normative, but what are the shared principles to, to reach some kind of coherence? And does it work in a group that is very diverse in terms of viewpoints and worldviews and and so on Mm, I think that's a really a really great question and my experience so far with these practices is yes because my thesis is that you know these disagreements and polarizations and divisions really happen at the level of concepts they happen on the level of this policy makes more sense compared to your policy or you know my viewpoint is different and clashes with yours but if you get into the level of, of values and what kind of world we want to live in, if we can get into that shared space of imagining the sorts of worlds we want to live in, it's it sort of changes the context. It changes the context and, and the level at which people are engaging and connecting. But I also think it's worth mentioning that the, within the collective imagination practices that I have been working with and developing there's a huge emphasis on plurality. We're not trying to get to a shared singular point of agreement or, or future, although I think that's also quite interesting, you know, using deliberative practices. I just participated in a very inspiring convening of, of democratic innovation practitioners, so people really innovating at the edges of democratic practice and citizen assemblies and citizen juries and the practice of deliberation itself can really be a collective imagination practice because when citizens come together to make decisions around whether to create bicycle lanes through the whole city they start to engage in practices of collective imagination what could the world what could our city look like if we did that if we did that what would the consequences be i think it's 
this imagination practice is also very key for the mapping of unintended consequences. Because rather than making decisions from a linear point from the present into the future, okay, we'll do this, this, and this, here's the five-year strategy, you can engage in actually um, exploring the possible unintended cons consequences of different actions and mapping out using more strategic foresight approaches, which do tend to be more linear and, and uh, moving from the present into the future. That can also be a very helpful practice. But to go back to the question around, I think, different viewpoints and, and, and how that works, like the practice really is around engaging in the, the complexity and creating the, this plurality of visions and approaches. And we also work closely with artists and poets and people who as part of the moral imaginations team will come in and work together with a group or a team or an organization and help bring alive these different visions and different metaphors so we work a lot also with metaphors of the future or of desired i'd say desired futures but but in a sense like almost timeless so like not necessarily in 10 years or 50 years from now but just alternative realities so it's almost like also visioning um, alternative presence. It doesn't just have to focus on envisioning alternative futures. A very key part of the practice is creating a space that is safe enough for people to engage in that imagining and, and actually share these often quite intimate and, and personal visions of what kind of organization they would love to work in or what kind of world they would like to live in. And through then being influenced by the other visions and, and imaginings of the group, you start to find these points of coherence, but there's no kind of double diamond, like there's no need for the group to then move towards like a single point of coherence or create a singular output. There are just as many outputs from these processes that are intangible and around the, the team dynamics and the communication that is possible in the room, in the group, in the team, as there are tangible outputs in terms of visions of different futures and artwork or poetry or um, these pluralistic visions. That's really interesting. I really appreciate how you compare this deliberation with collective imagination. It's really helpful to see that more sort of open-ended, supercharged <laughs> uh, deliberation process in a way that is not assuming the end post that we want to reach, right? And so I think that's that's super interesting. Thank you. Mm. That's great. And I just wanted to add that it, it's been really interesting speaking with colleagues in, as I say, the de democracy and, and bottom-up democracy citizen movement, because they speak about this deeply transformative effect of citizen juries and citizen assemblies where people are really themselves deeply transformed by the process of being in deliberation with a group of people very different to themselves. And I think, you know, it goes without saying that our current social media landscape really almost does the opposite. Like it creates these environments where we are led to believe that people are very different from us and, and it creates false uh, divisions. I mean, a lot of the people I, I speak to also in the political or the politics sector say, you know, the most most people are not left or right. Like everybody is a mix in terms of the policies they agree with, disagree with, like it's far more complex than, than we're led to believe. And so these deliberation practices can be so transformational for, for people, which I thought uh, was interesting. So I don't think it's the, the first thing that comes to mind when I imagine you know, being part of a, a democratic citizen assembly. It could seem like something quite dry and process-based. And yeah, so I, I just think that's a very interesting 
comparison. Yeah, I love how it's coming back from other conversations that we're having too, that we are these social uh, animals and and that sociality is really something and relationships is really something that is now seems to be emerging quite a lot in these different conversations. So, yeah. So basically, I have these two things in mind at the moment. One is uh, when we make space for this new approach to to imagination, as I understand, uh, it's not just about being imaginative, right? It's also about, let's say, being aware, um, uh, at least, of the trade-offs, let's say, that are related with uh, uh, thinking from a different, starting our, you know, imagination from a different standpoint, which is not the traditional standpoint of, I don't know, industrial consumerism. So, for example, I'm thinking of when we imagine as an embedded community, Uh, For example, there are uh, trade-offs that are related to our landscape or our capabilities, the resources we have, you know, and, you know, as we see in the world going a lot more into more regional perspectives, more sovereign, let's say, players uh, that uh, to some extent also compete, you know, between each other. So on one side, I'm thinking about, you know, what what does it happen to our imagination when we integrate the fact that we should be more embedded into the space, into the into the context, into the landscape, and so on. So, so if you want, these are more like uh, inherent trade-offs, right? As we reconnect with reality, right? As we reconnect uh, with the reality of existing in a world that is characterized by limited resources, the landscape, the ecosystems, and the ecologies that you spoke about. So that's one thing that is more about, you know, inherently accepting this new reality of rethinking our organizations, for example, or our institutions as embedded into the place. And on the other side, I'm thinking about more um, critical elements. I mean, we have been having uh, uh, Michael Sarkasas recently on the podcast uh, discussing the ideas uh, behind uh, conviviality and uh, the fact that uh, uh, we may have to look into imagining things uh, from a perspective of... Uh, you know, critically engaging with technology, for example, and renouncing to some extent to some technological outcomes that we have, be a little bit more austere, you know, in relating with technology, focusing more on playful relationships and valuing different things which are not produced by the technosphere, essentially, right? So how do we build organizations that are more playful, more relational and less technological, let's say? And also as humans, as how do we, you know, rebuild our imagination in a way that is a bit more disconnected from technology and, and that kind of picture of the future that we have been used to consider as progress, let's say. So these two things. And finally, of course, these two kind of different approaches to the future. So one that is more embedded on one side and one, a little bit more technology critical on the other side. How do we fit those also with the existing systemic lock-ins that exist, right? Uh, so how much systemic lock-ins, lock-ins, I mean, you know, the things that uh, we have to do or uh, just because we are part of, I would say, background, <laughs> let's say, right? Like so, the, the laws of gravity and exactly, the equivalence. Exactly. Economy. And you spoke about, you speak about the train, right? So that's essentially the, the idea, right? So, so how are these new institutions built on this new imagination that is also aware of where 
it's rooted? Uh, how does it look? You know, uh, what kind of space we really have to be also uh, real, I would say, right? To be also capable to imagine something that we can actually enact and we can decide to enact in a, in a different way. Mm. So to me, this, this question is really about constraints and about freedom. It's like freedom and constraints and the question around how much do we want to devolve power to technology or, or, or which parts are we willing to automate and to allow to run embedded in technology and whether that's smart contracts on the blockchain or you know other forms of kind of digital automated organizations because I, I think yeah especially for this podcast the interest is really around organizing and organizations I think also we, we shouldn't leave out the possibility that engaging in radical imagination and moral imagination undoes the organizational frame as well. So that what if in the future there is the question of whether organizations and institutions will exist in, in the form that we currently recognize them? And I think DAOs are a very, very early kind of gesture at, at the future of how we may might start unbundling legalities and agreements and accountabilities and financial investment and you know dividends and all of these things that are currently bundled within what we call an organization i think it's interesting like a, a little bit what your question gestures at to me is is how might we unbundle those things where also by unbundling human play and creativity and and you know, improvisation together, which is really what sparks joy for for the majority of people is like where their work can also be the place of, of their creativity, their thriving, their development. You know, there's a huge movement around like the deliberately developmental organizations and all of the teal organizations. There's this call for the workplace also becoming the site of, of the development of a human being and consciousness and play i really like that you you also brought in play and and another tension also comes up for me which i discussed on the green pill podcast with kevin owaki so founder of gitcoin and um you know really embedded in the regenerative blockchain web3 movement around the tension between this web3 you know digital organization de decentralized autonomous organizations movement of people who actually are becoming less and less connected to their locality to the point where, you know, as long as you have an internet connection, this digital nomadism uh, to the point where, you know, you're, you don't need a bank account if you have crypto, like it's becoming less and less embedded within the current system and nation states and the constraints of your passport and where you were born. Um, but at the same time, it, it starts to feel very disconnected from reality. I think that's just another tension to to name that there's a very interesting development going on around you know embedding organizations into digital systems and into distributed ledger technology. And currently, I'm not seeing enough of the constraints around a responsibility and a accountability to a bioregion, to the land, to the actual physical reality of polluted ecosystems and soil and the fact that you know, until we can totally plug ourselves into an energy source, like all of us rely on food and, and the soil that 
has like a limited number of cycles left. So I just think we we live in a very interesting time where there is a disconnect between the physical like corporality of where do you live, where were you born, you know, the connection to land, the more indigenous embeddedness into an ecology and then this other very futuristic and disconnected and almost like transhumanist movement towards like okay how do we plug into like stateless like going beyond the state and beyond passports and actually why don't we just all go to mars total disconnection even from the planet as a whole i mean these are extremes obviously uh, but i think it's an interesting tension and it also brings in the solar punk movement which I, I know we've spoken about previously Simone and I've been very much a proponent of and, and involved in since around 2014 which we can also go into but again a risk around the solar punk movement which is essentially an aesthetic aesthetic and um, a movement around the future and alternative visions of the future that bring together nature and ecology and technology I think another danger there is that the visions of the future that are driven by this solar punk ideal often look very, very futuristic and technological and, and disconnected from the land and from context. But then on the other side, you have uh, what people call cottage core um, or the more like degrowth eco villages, like again, an extreme that doesn't account for the reality of, of the technological development that we're living in. So those those are some reflections. We could dive into any any area from there, but that that's kind of what's coming up for me in response to your question. I mean, just probably worth double clicking quickly on on some interesting points that you brought up. This idea of DAOs and blockchain as a way to unbundle organizing, I think it's really interesting, you know, and resonates with some other projects that I'm I'm seeing emerging in the space. Um, you know, for example, I'm thinking to the MetaGov uh, pro- project as well. So this idea that as we unbundle the organization, right, we reduce it to the bare functionalities, right? We kind of codify bureaucracy into software. And suddenly we left with, uh, you know, basically the need to rebundle that. Once it's unbundled, then how do you rebundle it? And there's no more uh, an industrial institution that bundles the organization for us so that we can just consume it. We have this kind of responsibility to take over this rebundling process. And uh, in a recent piece that I wrote, I'm arguing that this kind of democratization of contracting and, you know, kind of technologically mediated organizing becomes more usable and more accessible. Uh, I'm arguing that essentially teams, communities, if you want, teams of teams should be more in charge and more able to contextualize, organize into their context. So I am assuming that as this space of organizing, technologically mediated organizing, democratizes and makes itself available as a set of pieces that you can rebundle, we will see more rebundling in the context, in the in the landscape, as you said. So we, you know, essentially, people should be more concerned about uh, producing essentially what they need. Uh, to some extent, this is resonant with what is happening from the risk perspective, right? Because we are seeing systemic crisis, uh, increasing lack of systemic support. So everything pushes, let's say, towards a more responsibility, us being more protagonist in imagining essentially how we organize and enacting it. And I think, you know, uh, in line with this, of course, imagination becomes uh, 
essential, right? Because if you are uh, in charge of, uh, you know, envisioning how do you rebundle an organization around your context, your acquaintances, your connections, your relationships, then you have to be able to imagine, you know, what you're building. Because nobody's going to serve it for you just to consume. So that's essentially something that is very, very interesting to us. Uh, I mean, the major challenges we see it's in the emergence of these constituents. This kind of institutionalization process, uh, it's really hard, uh, especially if we look into how people are captured into their jobs and into this kind of failing, rational, mechanistic system that is failing, and but we are all trapped into that. I'm sh- you know, what is your feeling in terms of how much these kind of emerging imaginations, you know, you spoke about solar punk and blockchain space, how much are they actually aware of, you know, these kind of responsibilities and this kind of uh, need to take over, you know, the job that we have to do to some extent. Uh, so essentially uh, what I mean is uh, it's not something that we, we can just imagine. We also actually have to do it. We have to take responsibility as groups, as communities, as teams. How do you feel, uh, you know, uh, this kind of perception is maturing in, in, in the ecosystem? Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly why we need imagination activists, not just dreamers. You know, we need to move from the dreamers. And I think, you know, musicians and artists and poets have have done so much for us. I was just reading a, a piece by Percy Shelley just before saying poets are the true legislators because they, you know, the, the poets and the artists really create the imaginary space from which then people can then legislate and do things. But actually, let's let's try and train both of these in the same individual so people can actually imagine and then act and do. Um, so that's one point I wanted to mention. And the other is I really like what you mentioned around democratizing contracting or legislature or institutions because you know in a sense one metaphor for an institution is a bundling but another metaphor would be like an interface because it's the interface of of human spirit and energy and creativity and agency with the system with uh, legalities finance accountability recognition it's kind of that interface with the systems that we all agree to live by and to you know to be controlled by to some extent like there's a and and actually there's not much choice there <laughs> depending on where you're born it's you don't have so much of a choice there isn't really a way to opt out um if you want to you know play within the confines of society i mentioned that because i'm interested in also something that the DAO movement really has ignited, I think, in the public imagination, which is around the use of DAOs to organize you know, groups of citizens, almost like movements of really around like coordinated activity. So there's a meme in the blockchain space that, that everything is coordination. All the problems we face just boil down to coordination problems, which Personally, I don't agree with because I, I really believe there's also like a, a problem of uh, values and choices, like the choices we make and, and like what we stand up for and integrity. Like it's not just coordination, but I think especially in the younger generations, I think it's quite empowering because they see it then as like, oh, this is just a problem that needs to be fixed. We don't need to actually contend with like the huge question of like, you know, who, what kind of human beings are, are we all and how, you know, what are we? 
willing to let happen and what is good and evil and you know these huge questions but I, just to go back to the dao point i think there's just something interesting to me that like in the future beyond organizations beyond institutions which at the moment are limited to the elite like it's not it's not like everybody actually can really set up an institution or an organization and and do it successfully like it's there are a lot of odds stacked against you if you don't have the necessary training and and credentials and and all of that but i think something interesting about DAOs and and like blockchain based organizations it's so easy to set up a bank account and you can immediately start organizing in this transparent way where people are really rewarded for their work and it's tracked and it's that that to me is really interesting because actually in the future how could we have a citizen powered cleanup you know and and regeneration of the world we need the kind of in, institutional infrastructure or the coordination tools to be able to do that like how could i don't know like the citizens of london come together to clean up the thames like right now it'd be, it's very difficult to do that you know you can use like facebook groups or email chains but there's a missing piece around how we can organize outside of institutions and really democratize the ability to coordinate on a massive scale which also connects with the scale question I'm kind of, we, we don't have video on, but I'm kind of nodding along as you speak. And it's very interesting, uh, many of those points that you bring up. And I think uh, maybe I can try to bridge it to another question that we had. We were, um, you know, exchanging with Simone in the background. Uh, it's a little bit on how do existing organizations incorporate these kind of transformations and or transitions that we are talking about. And I think what you mentioned Uh, with the DAOs, we had the, 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 I think it was the first episode of this season where we spoke to guys from Colony and they were saying something like, why, why not use, uh, you know, DAOs as, as the new sort of software uh, to organize things. So you don't need to sort of ask for, for permission. You can bring in those solutions into existing organization as well as you would introduce something like Trello or, or something else that helps you organize as a team. So I don't know to what extent uh, you know that resonates with you. I know that you you said that you've worked quite a lot also with the local government levels. So these are sort of in existing incumbents, let's say, uh, and legacy institutions. How do you think that is going to play out? Like, how would you work with these kind of tools uh, transforming organizations from the inside? I think it's a great bridge because I know many of the people who will be listening will be, you know, part of an organization or a local council or government and be thinking, well, great, like this is all really great and fantastical, but actually how does this relate to me and to what my organization is doing? In my experience of working with with local councils and government and organizations, it always takes having an inspired individual from the inside who's just like willing to put in the extra energy and hours to find the get arounds to find the loopholes to get something approved through you know whether it's the HR budget or the the CSR budget like it is really difficult within the current constraints of of our organizational infrastructure and and also the kind the norms of what is considered acceptable and 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 within these hierarchies also where there's a pressure to perform and to r- rise up through the hierarchy like there are many many pressures that mean that it's very difficult to really get radical ideas and experiments into the organizations unless you have that spark and that that inspiration coming from the inside like whether it's from a manager or from the ceo or or you know visionary leader or or an entrepreneur as as i think it was um 
Alexa Clay kind of coined this term. So yeah, so just to just to recognize that it's it's difficult. But as you say, there there are ways in. You can do all sorts of experiments at the level of culture and and at the level of, you know, like practice and as I say, like HR and leadership trainings. But the place where it gets really interesting to me is around the governance experiments. And that's really where I'm most interested in in working at that level for which you definitely need to, you know, to have the board and the senior leaders on board. But you can start at the level of practice and and go from there. Like a lot of my previous work and training organizations in horizontal practices and drawing a lot from Samantha Slade's going horizontal work and also practices that we developed and created within Inspiral and Lumio. You can start at the level of practice and actually, you know, through changing culture, you also change what is considered possible. So you can actually work at the level of the Overton window, which is a term used for like the the window within which certain policies are considered possible or, or like not too radical. So you can expand that Overton window through the level of culture and practice. But really, you want to get to the point where there are experiments going on in governance, in agreements, in more than just like norms and behaviors, actually more at the level of governance, basically, and experiments in in how things work at the board or even in like hiring and recruitment. And yeah, so I think that's important to say. And also at the level of ownership, that's almost like the the holy grail and, and something I used to say quite candidly um, as a consultant, that you can be as decentralized and horizontal as you like in terms of practice and culture and behavior. But if you're not actually experimenting with decentralizing ownership, even if it's just a little bit to start with, then we're not really changing the deeper yeah, wiring of our economy and ownership and that true democratic organizational vision. So I see this continuity with, uh, for example, you know, the, the experiences in TL, um, Agile, and all these uh, shared governance, horizontal organizations, and potentially also the, the, the blockchain and so on. But in your experience, how much uh, do you actually also need uh, different, I mean, I don't want to say spiritual elements, you know, if we connect these kind of new epistemic that is needed to really embrace this, the new possibilities of imagining something different, I tend to connect these with uh, uh, spiritual elements, uh, tradition, culture, uh, religion. So in, in your experience, is this also part of the organizational transition or is it possible to to just embrace this transformation within the frame of 100% frame of modernity <laughs> what a great question i love that you brought the the word spirituality in and i think this comes back to like is it actually a coordination problem or is there something deeper here that it- I mean, t- totally. I mean, I was thinking to something that I quote uh, too often here on this uh, on this podcast that, that is uh, Wendell Berry's work, and uh, uh, he used to say that uh, you cannot uh, delegate change to an organization. Basically, you no, know, it needs to start from the human, from the person. And Wendell Berry's work has been always in connection with uh, agriculture and culture, essentially as an expression of place, and and you know, he has all these. Uh, elements of connection with tradition. So I'm really curious to know what kind of roles do these things have in, in your in your work, if any? Oh, massive. I mean, you know, very much at the core of the moral imagination work, it's 
really at the level of the human and of values and of that deeper transformation, although this word transformation is really like over overused now, really to to change systems. And I think this this also really draws on what I've learned from like Batonian systems and Nora's work. I don't think it's possible to change culture from within the system. So like if if you're trying to work on the change within the organization, I think what becomes more interesting is moving into the context between organizations or at another kind of level of context. Like Nora talks about this, like people within the organizational context will be really living in a role and very constrained. And you can think about this also in the context of, of family and like just to help people draw a metaphor, like, you know, when there are dynamics that are present in a family, you try and sort them out from within the family context, just, just the, you know, the family members, and you just end up going in loops round and round and round and round because it's so hard to get out of the scripts that are running within the family context. So how does change happen? It's got to come from a different context and, and something's got to loosen up within the dynamic where, you know, whether it's like family members going to therapy or taking a, a trip or, you know, there's got to be something that loosens the dynamic. And I think that's the same within organizations. And I think, I mean, it also begs the question for me at the moment, I'm really uh, contending with whether doing this work within the organizational context really makes sense. Like, do I really think the change exists within the organizations? Like, you know, is it possible with all of the, the constraints and even the kind of the legal constraints that keep us within certain tracks of behavior and thinking and what is considered possible or, you know, what is considered allowed or acceptable? I think I'm, I'm more interested in inter-organizational communities, like these communities where people can have one foot within their organization and another foot out with others from different organizations. So there's this sense of what's going on in your organization? Is it, do you also have this problem? Like, how do we actually loosen this up? And how do people start to, you know, break these incumbent structures that, that keep them within ways of behaving and acting, contributing to society that, that no longer fit their vision of like who, who they want to be and what kind of world they want to live in. Yeah, I think, um, like I was mentioning before, I think we have, you know, touched on these uh, kind of topics. And I can see now that we have three fairly coherent episodes. We were talking to John Alexander about a uh, new citizenship project. Uh, you might be in the same ecosystem as him. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, so I think the dots, the dots connect. And that's really what we aim with this podcast as well, to sort of stretch our way of looking at things. And now it's it's really from this sort of outside in uh, perspective and we don't really know um, exactly how things are going to play out. So thank you for bringing all the, your uh, amazing experiences into to this conversation. I think, uh, yeah, listening to those together and also with the one we had, we're publishing next week, like Simone mentioned with Otti Vogt and um, Antoinette Weibel on virtue ethics and even I would say almost more abstract to some extent or more philosophical maybe. So I think we can start to weave some threads around that. So so next uh, final question is uh, how do people find your work? How do they follow what you do and what's the most relevant resources to look into after this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that I, I think that's really the space that I try to traverse is to be in, you know, like one arm stretched out into these much more intangible concepts and, you know, things like values and ethics and like the unimaginable and, 
you know, territories of imagination and, and as we talked about the concepts and, or metaphors for organizations, but then also one arm really like stretched into like, what can we do today and like practice, you know, practices and really bringing it back to the individual and to, you know, to the collective, what can be done, what can be practiced, what can be learned, where can we find community to, you know, bring these visions and ideals into, into practice. So the places that people can find me, I, I would say, are at my website, phoebetickel.com. I'm also on Twitter and unfortunately often quite uh, quite active there. So please, please do reach out. That's solarpunk underscore girl. The website for Moral Imaginations is moralimaginations.com. And we also have a Twitter, which is moral underscore imagining and a Substack. And I'm in the process of building an organization which will hold a lot of the work that we've been speaking about. Um, so that that is coming. So stay tuned and um, please reach out if if you're interested in in speaking or collaborating or exploring these topics further. Thank you so much. I mean, it's it's great to have these conversations. As I said, uh, you know, unless you want to ask the usual questions, uh, you end up having to ask different ones. And that's what we, we also do in this podcast. So thank you so much, Phoebe. It was great to have you. Um, I hope our listeners, we, we follow your work closely. Thank you so much, uh, Stina. To our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundaryless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobiliot Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.